Hello! And welcome to ADD History with Wilson King. That's me. Episode 3. In the beginning, part 3. The Rise of the Human. This is the real beginning of our story, in a way. The previous two episodes were a fairly casual explanation of the natural history of Earth, as far as we can tell, up until a million years ago. As the time period we're discussing gets more recent, the resolution of what was happening gets sharper. This episode will cover less than a million years, and deals with some of the most controversial topics in the study of the past, the rise of the humans. There are so many theories on what got the ball rolling to make humans such a strange species, with all the talking, culture, and building things we do, because we appear to be the first creatures in the history of the planet to do anything like this, as far as we know. Humans seem to have started to do all this strange stuff pretty quickly in the scheme of things. There were 200 million years of dinosaurs, and it's really unlikely that any of them ever made a toaster. Meanwhile, humans went from eating bugs out of each other's hair to live-streaming nuclear war in about 200,000 years or less. It really is an anomaly, and since we don't have solid proof of what caused it, there are a lot of theories. The theories on how humans evolved can be put on a spectrum from obviously true to wild and nutty. On the level-headed end of the spectrum, there's things like humans started cooking. Somewhere in the middle, there's ideas like humans ate a lot of psychedelic mushrooms that tripped us into sentience. Then on the far-out wacky end of the spectrum, there's the fun idea that aliens needed a slave race to mine gold, so they genetically engineered early humanoids to be smart enough to follow orders. That last one gets its own episode, whether it's true or not, because it's a complicated and wild idea. At very least, it's a fun story. There's plenty of ideas in between all of that, and none of them are really mutually exclusive. There's a lot of ideas that make varying levels of sense, and that's before we get to all the myths and legends and religious teachings on the subject. That's a whole other can of worms that I'll at least try to factor into the discussion at some point, but probably not in this episode. So all that said, this episode could offend some people, because just about everything can be offensive to somebody, and I mean that genuinely, I'm not being snarky. The obligatory disclaimer. I mean no disrespect towards any religions, races, feminists, vegans, genuine scientists, or the French. I'm coming at this from an open-minded perspective, which is kind of the best and generally most fun way to look at a mystery. This subject is one of the greatest mysteries of all. How did we get here? I'm going to have fun with this, and I invite you to join me. I set the stage for this period at the end of the last episode, a cold and brutal world, populated by giant and often very furry creatures. This story focuses on an important group of creatures I didn't really mention, not so large and generally becoming less furry, humans. In fact, the list of primates that existed then that wouldn't seem out of place selling you overpriced coffee was not limited to homo sapiens. Those are modern humans, basically the same creatures as today, but living alongside them were at least two other species, Neanderthals and Denisovans. I'll explain them more later. There are likely more variants, as another extinct species was found within the last two decades on an island in the Pacific called Homo floriensis, a small humanoid that some have nicknamed hobbits. They seem to have been limited to the island that they were found on, and their small stature due to a phenomenon called island dwarfism. 
This assumes that the remains of creatures like dog-sized elephants that are found on islands got smaller over the course of time because of the limited food supply that they had available on their island home. More hominid species are found all the time, but listing all the bones that have been found which are almost but not quite human would get pretty boring. Some, like Homo nelidi, almost seem to fit the image of a Lord of the Rings-style goblin, but what can be said for sure is that there were a lot of human-adjacent people creatures in this hazy time of prehistory. In fact, this epic time period with various humanoids is straight out of Lord of the Rings. Middle-earth from Lord of the Rings is supposed to take place in an ancient time period of Earth, long before memory. I get it, I'm a nerd, but J.R.R. Tolkien was a genius. Anyway, while humans, Neanderthals, and Denisovans are all the most notable humanoid species of this time, there are always more that we have yet to identify, and plenty that I won't even get around to mentioning in this episode. In these extremely ancient times, one group of humans could be living in one valley, while a completely different culture could have existed on the other side of the mountain, having practically no contact with those who live on the other. Give it a couple thousand years, and you're looking at two very different groups of people who have children with their cousins. It's an obvious point, but there were no books, maps, or even rideable horses at this point, so travel was dangerous and slow, and meeting new people might have led to being cannibalized. This is a state of affairs that slowly gets undone as time progresses, and cultures of people from who knows where will emerge from obscurity throughout our grand narrative of Earth's history. Usually, meeting a new culture was not something anybody looked forward to. Generally, you were never meeting a new culture because they wanted to find new people to hug. There's a fun and strange movie that paints a fictionalized picture of early humanity called A Quest for Fire from 1981. There's no actual dialogue and a lot of strange sexual stuff, but it's worth a watch if you find early humanity interesting. Ron Perlman plays a caveman in the movie, and he has never fit a role better. It's strange, slow, and French-Canadian. At very least, the movie does a good job of reminding you that keeping the fire going was pretty important for a lot of our ancestors because they didn't always know how to make a new one. On the point of fire, it's hard to tell exactly when early humanoids started to see it as a potential ally instead of something to be terrified of. There's vague evidence of fire being used as far back as 1.4 million years ago in Ethiopia and Kenya. Because it's tricky to find evidence of fire being used, it could have been a lot longer ago, and it's assumed that humans have probably used fire in one way or another for at least two million years. Given that the world was in an ice age at the time, it's not a stretch to imagine that some brave soul warmed their bones next to a naturally occurring fire. They were soon joined by their tribe, and they soon all realized that staying warm without the sun out was pretty cool. Some clever character probably realized that the fire could be fed and nurtured. This might have been the realization of an individual or generations that slowly figured it out, and it was likely discovered in different ways by different groups across the territory of early humans. It's all pretty self-evident now, but for people who had no knowledge of anything, it might have taken a while to figure out, for good reason, as fire is obviously dangerous and most creatures avoid it. Once our hypothetical tribe figured out that they could feed a fire, which probably took a lot of trial and error, they eventually must have noticed that it grew stronger when the wind blew on it and weaker when it got rained on. For untold generations, people who were probably grunting at each other to communicate watched the fire, learning its needs and its volatile anger, how to help it and how to keep it tame. While the tribe gathered around the earliest version of television, their community grew stronger. In a scene like this, likely in the natural shelter of a cave, 
people might have acted out the events of the day's hunt, sharing information and entertaining their tribal family. Perhaps this is where the first group came to the agreement that one type of grunt meant rock and another grunt meant branch and so on, and the first stirrings of language began to form. Something about it makes me feel very sentimental. As an aside, I had a dream when I was about four that always stuck with me. I had woken up around a campfire with my cave people family, and the modern world of 1998 I was living in had all been a strange dream. I don't know what to make of that, but it almost felt relevant. Anyway, with or without any form of language to explain it, these early fires were incredibly valuable. Something that must be protected. There's no doubt that keeping a fire going, even for generations, is a lot less complicated than starting one. It wouldn't surprise me if keeping the fire going led to early concepts of religion, as appeasing it would give great benefit, but mistreating it could provoke its anger. The knowledge of how to keep a fire happy could have been an almost sacred wisdom. I can relate to this feeling, as I mostly heat my home in the brutal winters with a wood stove, and I cherish its warmth. I sit by my beloved fire at the time of this writing. While I was taught how it is a chemical reaction, without that knowledge I could easily see how one might think that it is the gift of a loving but wrathful god, or that fire was a higher power in and of itself. Techniques were developed to keep a fire smoldering separate from the main one, ensuring the tribe the ability to have a backup fire even if some disaster or negligence extinguished their main one. Across the world, people developed ways to do this, even allowing for the possibility of transporting the fire to a new location. The fire bundle was a brilliant leap forward for mankind. It was kind of the iPhone of its day. Carrying a smoldering fire in a bundle would have allowed early people to explore new territory and colonize the harsh environment of the Ice Age North. For people who hunted and gathered to survive, nomadic lifestyles would have brought the benefit of new places to forage, with the danger of stumbling into hostile people, animals, and environments. Surely some people walked into untamed paradise and thrived on their courage, while others set up camp in entirely the wrong neighborhood, meeting the horrifying consequences of their curiosity. Along with the slow taming of fire, it must have been discovered by one or many groups that burning meat actually makes it a lot more appealing to eat. I'm guessing that this discovery may have been from some starving proto-humans that ate some animal that had died in a forest fire, and they realized that it was absolutely gourmet. Like they had just discovered sliced bread, but way better, they may have run back to the tribe at their home cave, excitedly throwing chunks or whole animals into the fire, to the great confusion of the others. This is probably how somebody invented the well-done steak, and maybe later discovering the subtle art of medium rare. These two discoveries, fire and cooking, were gigantic milestones for our ancestors. Fire created settlement, the beginning of society, and cooking allowed for much higher amounts of nutrition to be released from the same chunk of animal. These developments alone might have been enough to jumpstart evolution that has now led to space travel and smartphones. Here are some other factors that happened alongside, before or after fire and cooking at some point in the hazy past. Surely all these developments happened at different times for different groups of early humans depending on the survival pressures they faced, but everybody figured out how to make basic tools at some point. The earliest evidence for tool making dates all the way back to 2.6 million years ago, before the earliest evidence of fire use. It's worth noting that evidence of tool making is easier to find than fire use. Flakes of stone from making tools stick around, right where somebody left them, but evidence of a campfire goes away pretty quickly in most cases. Pinpointing when any of that was done first is pretty much impossible, and both developments could have happened much earlier, somewhere. The earliest tools came down to two basic designs. 
The hammerstone is a rock you use to hit things with. Otherwise known as a rock. I suppose it's a tool if somebody's using it, and it's a rock if it's just laying around, right? The other is a hand axe, which would be used to cut things. Third idea came around at some point, the spear point. The idea of attaching these early tools to a branch was fucking revolutionary. The dude who figured that out probably never slept alone, so Ook-Ook, the stick tool guy, is probably everybody's grandfather. These tools were made by a process called napping, where you break off bits of stone to create a useful edge. Aside from the hammerstone, of course, which sounds a lot like just a well-shaped rock that required very little refining to be good for hitting things, right? If one ever tries making a stone cutting implement, it quickly becomes clear what these people did all day because it's ridiculously difficult, requiring great skill and patience. Next is probably one of the most consequential developments of human evolution, but not something that you might expect. This is the development of monogamy or pair bonding. One might think stable relationships between men and women would not be all that significant next to fire tools and cooking, but it might be the thing that led to all of that becoming possible. I'm a bit of a hopeless romantic, so I'm willing to buy it. I do ridiculous things involving fire, cooking, and displaying how I can keep a girl alive and entertained all the time, so I'm sure us monkeys have been at it for a while. All you need is love, right? This is probably the oldest development, as very early human ancestors that broke off from chimpanzees around 7 million years ago started to move towards the rare behavior for mammals of pair bonding. For most mammals, the most alpha male is the only father in the group, and that causes some issues. I often make the joke that the only reason men really do anything is so that they can impress women. It's a joke, but strictly speaking from a biological sense, it's not really a joke at all. If men reproduced asexually we probably would have just stuck to hunting, fighting, and burning things. To be fair, I wouldn't be surprised if an entirely male humanity would have developed very sophisticated weaponry, but we probably never would have gotten around to inventing plumbing. Humans are not amoebas, though, and one of the strongest drives humans have is to have somebody to love, at least physically. That, obviously, is biology's way of making sure the species survives, and that those who are successful enough to mate pass on their genes. Pretty romantic, huh? Why monogamy probably led to evolution is because men could finally stop spending all their time fighting each other to see who gets to impregnate all the women. That was a real waste of time, and I'm looking at you, chimpanzees. Instead of that barbaric behavior, early human men then had a reason to prove that they were the coolest guy in the tribe so that they could convince the most desirable girl in the tribe to sleep with them. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The way for a caveman bachelor to show everybody how great he was came down to bringing in the most resources, innovating to make surviving easier, and acting in a way that made others like him. Right there, early human men had incentives to be hardworking, smart, and to display pro-social behavior. As a consequence, it's likely that men forcing themselves on women of their tribe quickly became the sort of thing that would get the assaulter killed. The instinct for men to protect women they desire or love runs really deep. Of course, I'm sure basically every caveman would have been me too'd, but there was then at least an incentive for early humanoid men to defend women from overt sexual assault. Monogamy also had the side benefit of at least making it possible for people to not have children with their half-siblings. Inbreeding becomes a choice that you didn't have to make, and that's pretty great. Beyond that, the instinct for men to protect their child instead of maybe their child is stronger, and it's simpler to watch out for the kid one knows are theirs instead of the whole village. Meanwhile, chimps kept fighting over women and living in trees, and that choice isn't working out so well now.
unfortunately. Of course, then and now, some cultures stuck to some version of polyamory, but there's a pretty significant correlation with higher levels of violence and a tendency to not develop past Stone Age technology internally. Correlation doesn't equal causation. But if we're being honest with ourselves, it's not hard to see how many men sleeping with the same women leads to a lot of broken noses, or worse. All that time spent beating all your hot girlfriend suitors to death is time that is not spent doing something productive, and it's not a stretch to see how all of that gets a bit stagnant over the course of time. For a fun aside, it's worth mentioning that monogamy is probably why adult human females display an unusual adaptation for mammals, which is permanently enlarged mammary glands, otherwise known as boobs. Fuck yeah, humanity. To my knowledge, no other mammal keeps their boobs visibly swollen all the time, but it would appear that the early human women who had the gene for permaboobs had more children than the ones that didn't, because they appeared more fertile, so boobs won the contest of evolution. I'm biased, but that makes sense to me. Then again, if aliens genetically engineered humans, they might have just added boobs because they were perverts. However it happened, I'm yet to find anyone who didn't think boobs were a great idea. In a broader sense, early human women had a reason to be prettier, smarter, and more likable, and men had the incentive to be more capable, smarter, and likable. This means sexual competition has been pushing us for millions of years to be more beautiful, smart, and kind, and that seems like a great thing to me. It is important to remember that these early humans were probably almost as smart as us, lacking the consistent nutrition that modern people have, which is known to lower IQ, but they had a lot more pressure to be clever enough to stay alive in a hostile world. In my opinion, it is best to think of humans of a million years ago as being practically as smart as us, but lacking any of the knowledge that we now take for granted, and probably having terrible manners. This means clever adaptations were probably shared quite easily, from the basic rule of monkey see, monkey do. Ideas and techniques were extremely valuable then, and there's no reason to think that people wouldn't have gifted or traded knowledge to people they trusted, or stolen and spied it from people they fought with. At some point, somebody figured out one of many methods to make fire in a consistent and repeatable way, instantly making themselves and their tribe wealthy, so to speak. Showing others how to make fire for themselves would have been a great gift, which may have often warranted gifts in return. On the less savory side, it is not unlikely that this may have been the first piece of information that somebody ever tortured out of another. Even this is an evolution in itself, as it likely formed alliances, promoted trade, and gave people shiny new reasons to fight each other. All that being said, now let's introduce our cousins. First, the common ancestor, which is probably Homo erectus. It's a fun name to giggle at if you're 12, but it is a reference to the fact that they walked fully upright. These guys were probably a bit on the chimpanzee side, living around 2 million years ago, give or take. There was a more evolved species between them and the more modern humanoids, whose name I won't trouble you with, but Erectus seems to have gotten the ball rolling on migrating across the planet. From them came Homo sapiens, Neanderthals, and Denisovans. Neanderthals are named after the valley in present-day Germany where they were first discovered. They appear to have lived across the parts of Europe that weren't covered in miles of ice, and a good portion of Western and Northern Asia. They may have been a bit taller than the Homo sapiens of the time with a stockier build. Viking types, right? They appear to have had larger noses adapted to the cold, and the heavy brow that is the classic image of a caveman. Apparently human men could have children with Neanderthal women, but not the other way around. And Neanderthals are thought to have had longer gestation periods for their children, something like 14 to 16 months. 
Some theorize that's a large part of why they went extinct, while the humans they competed with bred like rabbits. Next is the Denisovans, named after... Dennis? Really, there was a hermit that lived in a Siberian cave, so they called it Dennis's Cave. Personally, I'm picturing the guy with the bundle of sticks on his back from the cover of Led Zeppelin IV. He lived in a cave and apparently worshipped the old gods or something. But that's where they found the first Denisovans. The cave wizard dude was long dead by the time they found the bones, but I still think that it's pretty great that that guy has a whole human species named after him. Finding the Denisovans is all pretty recent, so it's hard to pin down many details about them. But they clearly lived across eastern Asia, with a lot of crossover in Siberia and Eurasia with the Neanderthals. I heard once that they may have been a little shorter on average than Homo sapiens, but I can't really find anything that's backing that up. Since modern science has only confirmed some bones and teeth of these people, the only real data that can be relied on about them is the DNA samples from them. So, here's the thing. Sapiens, Neanderthals, and Denisovans all share a common ancestor back to around 900,000 years ago. That date is disputed in all sorts of ways, but we're not here to split hairs. This gets complicated, because it's the story of a million years of that kid not look like me. But it is clear that there were interbreeding between all of these groups and some others that haven't been identified in one way or another. Everybody was banging, and sometimes it even seems to have been consensual. There was enough genetic difference between them that they couldn't necessarily produce children all the time, but clearly that didn't stop them from trying. On plenty of occasions, it appears that there were hybrid children born, and some mix of Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA is present in different levels across modern human populations. Outside of Africa. Right there is a discussion that can go in some strange racial directions, which might make some people very angry, and other people a little too happy for all the wrong reasons. I refuse to fear explaining the reality of the situation, though, but try not to make this weird, because it's really interesting. As Homo sapiens migrated out of Africa, through the Middle East, they encountered Neanderthals in the north towards Europe, and Denisovans in the east towards China, to oversimplify it. They likely fought with these groups on many occasions, but there's plenty of evidence that they just cohabitated with them a lot of the time as well. There's one archaeological site in western Siberia that appears to have had humans, Neanderthals, and Denisovans all living together peacefully. Kumbaya, fellow cave person. This led to Europeans, Eurasians, and people from the Middle East and North Africa having the highest concentration of Neanderthal genes. It's not much, something like 1-4% of the very complex genome of people from the vague area of Europe, but something like 20% of the Neanderthal genome lives on in modern humans. My ancestors were basically from Scandinavia, and you can see more than a hint of stereotypical caveman in my facial structure. Meanwhile, Denisovan DNA appears most present in Asia and natives of the Americas, but most especially in the populations of people who settled the islands of the Pacific. This makes sense given that the places like the Philippines were settled a very long time ago, and those people wouldn't have been mixing it up as much as the people on the continent in the many thousands of years since. Genghis Khan and his Mongol horde probably changed the genetic makeup of Asia quite a bit, for example, and that's true of all of the invasions, migrations, and other events throughout time. Since the discovery of Denisovans is very recent, there's not much more that can really be understood about the subject, but all of these species are our ancestors to various degrees. Personally, I find that to be an interesting aspect of what makes all of the wonderful cultures of Earth unique. So anyway, don't start going on about Neanderthal supremacy if you're writing the sequel to Mein Kampf. 
because that's obviously a stupid and dangerous way of looking at the world. Still, the separation and later reintegration of Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA is probably a contributing factor to why people from different areas of the Earth look different. I think it's really cool to see how much adapting to different areas of the world make people unique. And I reject the idea that people would be any less nasty to each other if we were all identical gray blobs. Just look at medieval Europe. Humans, Neanderthals, and Denisovans often live together in peace. And I think we could, too. We probably won't, but we could. Anyway, now that I've danced around the great third rail of race talk, let's get into a slightly less controversial topic, the theory of psychedelics having affected human evolution. Terence McKenna was best known for his studies of psychedelics, though some people might say he's just a guy who took a lot of colorful drugs. He came up with a theory on human evolution that goes alongside all those other things I mentioned earlier that he charmingly called stoned ape theory. This theory hypothesizes that early humans, who were almost always starving, tried some mushrooms that were neither poisonous nor nutritious, and that group of early humans had a very strange evening. This may have been when giggling was invented. McKenna asserts that when the tribe woke up the next morning, they were looking at the world in a new way. They felt a new love for their friends and family and a deeper perceived understanding of the world around them. They did not fear death the same way they had the day before, and felt life was a joyful gift because they had discovered giggling the night before. Now, I'm obviously a very straight-laced guy who's never had hair down to my shoulders, and I wouldn't know anything about eating psilocybin cubensis mushrooms. But, from what I've heard, eating these mushrooms can be a profound experience that can change a person's life for the better. The experience often leaves a person with a feeling of oneness with the universe, which is hard to describe, but it seems similar to a lot of religious concepts. In fact, many religions can trace their roots to ancient shamanism, which often involved eating hallucinogens like mushrooms. As a potential consequence, those who eat these mushrooms often feel less fear of death afterwards. They gain an appreciation for the small world of ants and the massive scale of the stars. For every mushroom we know, somebody had to try eating it to find out if it was food, poison, or something that would make them want to dance at a Grateful Dead show. It is positive that some early human ate psychedelic mushrooms, and while we don't know if that made them want to invent agriculture and religion, it probably changed their perspective. As psychedelic mushrooms are now being studied scientifically, there is now some pretty solid evidence that at very least the experience often reduces fear of death, and it's one of the only things that seems to cause neurogenesis, which is the growth of pathways in the brain. For an early human, fighting off cave bears and hunting woolly mammoths to survive, a little less fear of death might have been pretty useful. If the experience left them feeling a deep love for their people, it may have encouraged society to form. Maybe the experience made a group try to find a way to communicate that was a little bit more advanced than grunting. The spiritual feelings that people often report after an experience with psychedelic mushrooms may have led to early people to believe that there is meaning in their lives and given them faith that the universe isn't all just meaningless chaos. I know it made me, I mean, you know, other people feel that way. Taking various forms of psychedelics is well understood to have been a big part of many of the oldest religious practices in many different forms of shamanism across the cultures of Earth. I won't go on about it all now, but there is clearly a tradition with psychedelics that goes back into hazy prehistory. There is no way to tell if psychedelics actively played a role in human evolution, but it really wouldn't be surprising. Some even believe symbolically, that it was the apple in the story of Adam and Eve that made them know good and evil. I'll get to that story in a later episode, if I feel brave enough to poorly retell the story of the Bible. So, 
That's the basics of the scientific side of human evolution up to about a million years ago. Humans started to trend towards monogamy seven million years ago. They definitely ate some weird mushrooms at some point. And they were probably pretty well versed in making tools and at least using, if not making, fire by two million years ago. I'm going to do a bonus episode or two on some of the other possibilities because the scientific method, while useful, can't account for things that can't be proven. Lack of proof isn't proof that something didn't happen. There is no way to put together a timeline of events during this period. Obviously, nobody was writing anything down, at least not in a way that we currently are aware of or understand. Probably not, though. There are some lovely cave paintings, but it's clear that it took a while to get to Da Vinci. Homo erectus, the really early human, started to migrate out of Africa about two million years ago. They basically evolved into the three major groups I mentioned, Neanderthals in the north, Denisovans in the east, and humans in Africa. Modern humans, just like us, have existed for at least 200,000 years. About 70,000 years ago, a supervolcano killed off the majority of us, with as few as 2,000 people surviving through that time to repopulate Earth. A lot could have happened in the 200,000 years between the first modern humans and now, which we will never really know about without a time machine. What is clear is that humans were all over the old world by 40,000 years ago or earlier, living in cooperation or competition with their cousins. Neanderthals were nearing extinction by then, and it remains unclear when Denisovans went extinct, but I've seen estimates that it was around 15,000 years ago. I'd be willing to assume that it might have been 12,000 years ago, for reasons I'll explain in the next couple episodes. 12,000 years ago was a crazy time. For ease of reference, I'm just going to refer to them all as humans from this point on. One place where there is currently a lot of debate is when humans made it to the Americas. The conventional position was that they squeaked into the New World right before the Bering Land Bridge between Alaska and Siberia sank back into the sea around 13,000 years ago. The newer perspective insists that there's evidence of humans living in North America as far back as 50,000 years ago. At very least, there is solid evidence of human footprints in New Mexico from 23,000 years ago. I must say, I tend to agree that humans entered the New World earlier rather than later because there's, you know, evidence. Evidence means that they were there at least that long, and somehow we can prove it, but it is possible that they were there a lot longer without any ideal muddy fossilized footprints. The case that it was 13,000 years ago, at the last possible moment that humans could have walked to America, boils down to old academics would prefer to never be proven wrong. Still, it's pretty clear that they're wrong now, and the Americas have been populated by humans for quite a while. In the next couple episodes, you're going to hear a lot of talk like that, because we're coming up on a period that has a lot of disputes around it. The period of time between 10 and 20,000 years ago is a very touchy subject for the scientific mainstream. Many respectable academics are clinging to the perspective that humanity were all exclusively hunter-gatherers before about 6,000 years ago, and newer evidence is proving that idea to be clearly false now. The moral of this story is to remember from whence we came. A falafel place I used to frequent had a piece of art with that statement on it, next to a large wooden hammer that always stuck with me. It's pretty common now for modern humans to think of ourselves as being something new and different, that our actual bodies and minds have progressed beyond our ancestors. In reality, we are cavemen with smartphones, cars, and nuclear weapons. We aren't that different from other mammals, with brains evolved to survive just like raccoons do. Our basic programming has been shaped by half a billion years of evolution where eating, mating, and not being bitten by venomous snakes was most of what we had to think about. Our complex social systems and intrinsic motivations essentially still boil down to not starving, not being eaten, and having somebody to share it all with. 
our early human ancestors are not so different from us at all. They fought nature to survive, and they fought each other for reasons that they might have pretended were more complex than that. Regardless of the never-ending justifications for human conflict, our ancestors never would have gotten anywhere if they hadn't worked together, in spite of their differences. That social nature, thumbs, and a developed frontal cortex have made us the dominant species on this planet, for better or for worse. In daily life, I tend to keep in mind that the basic instinctual psychology of myself and everyone else is still just the operating system for a hunting and gathering upright walking primate. A good book on that subject is A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, which I implore the many people I love to read. In the next episode, we're going to explore some of the strange and totally unproven stories that allegedly happened in the late Pleistocene. That is every stoner sci-fi nerd's favorite topic, ancient alien theory. (laughs) 